Uh, John chapter 21. I want to set the background of this. And you know, in the series we've been together, uh, we've been looking at the theme of Scripture. So when we pick up the Bible, we get this broad picture of what God's trying to communicate to us. If you read Scripture and you see the individual stories, it is important to tie the individual stories to the grand theme of what God's communicating to us. He is a king. He has built his kingdom. Man has sin and rebellion. In that rebellion, God can bring his wrath and judgment, but God has offered us his grace. That's why Jesus has come. God's plan of redemption. God's come for you to give his life to you to die in your place so that you don't face death and judgment before the Lord. Rather, you find grace, forgiveness, and renewal. God can make all things new in your life. The, the story of the Bible, if I brought it down into one word, it would be redemption. This king and his kingdom delivering it to you. And so we've seen how this is tied together in the Old Testament, bringing it into the New Testament. And today, last, last time I spoke, two weeks ago, we talked about the beginning of these gospels and tying this picture together. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, why we have four gospels and yada, yada, yada. If you don't know the answer to why we have four gospels and some other questions related to the gospels, you had them, I would tell you, listen to the message a couple weeks ago. But today, this is what I want to do. Uh, I, I love John chapter 21. I am so thankful for, for where it is in the Bible. And, and how God has positioned it here and what he's te- he teaches us through it. Um, John chapter 21 addresses for us really the human experience as it relates to living life for the Lord. It is not always easy, right? Uh, we have battles and we aren't perfect. Like when you read the Gospels, what you see is uh, as Jesus lived his life, it was brilliant. It was beautiful. He was a leader. He was humble. Uh, he, he was firm. He was loving and he was bold. I mean, how he mixes all of that together. How, how can he lead with such confidence yet with such gentleness? It is incredible. And then you get to the disciples. And on some days at best, maybe the, the best description you could give them is a train wreck in motion. <laughs> like it was like, if we could ever have a do over, uh, today would be the day for these disciples. I mean, they, they were trying, but it, it didn't always work out. And when you get to the end of the gospels, you really see this happening, right? Uh, uh, at, the, at the end of the gospels, it starts to lay out for us this, uh, this picture that is, is difficult uh, emotionally, spiritually, every capacity of a human being, I think, to deal with. And I'm just going to sort of give you a synopsis. I don't want to dive into these verses. I just want to give you a synopsis so that you can go on this, this journey with me as I'm explaining to you the importance of John chapter 21. Because everything leading into this is exactly why we have John chapter 21. And so when you look at the, I'm going to use it from the gospel of Luke just to set a precedent because Luke is a little more detailed before I leap into John 21. But if, if you look at the end of Luke, what you find starting in John 19 is Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is his, his last moments on earth. He's on the, the back of a donkey going into the city, and they're all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I mean, basically saying, take your kingdom now, king, and giving this kind of declaration. But while this is happening, the religious leaders, it tells us in Luke 19, look to Jesus and tell Jesus to silence the crowd. And Jesus basically says, I'm not going to do that. He goes a little further and says, if I did, even the rocks would cry out in this moment, right? But shortly after this, this, this time where Jesus is getting the celebration, Jesus knows it's short-lived. That the genuineness of people's hearts really aren't there. That they're not praising him for who he is. They're praising them because of what they get from him. He's, he's sort of like this walking magic show that every once in a while, if they get hungry, he'll just pop out five loaves and feed the whole crowd, you know? And, and Jesus knows this. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 41, he weeps over Jerusalem because the people have rejected him. 
Verse 45, he goes to the temple and he drives out the money changers. This is where Jesus wreaks havoc on the temple. And you see crazy Jesus in these moments driving out people uh, in the temple. I could explain to you why, but I don't have time for that. So if you want to know, you can ask me later. I've taught on it a few times. But Jesus drives out people. Verse 47, uh, the religious leaders want to kill him. And then when you get to chapter 20, this is where um, the religious leaders come to Jesus and they pose questions to him because they're trying to trick him and trap him. And Jesus answers these questions masterfully. And they get to the end of that and they realize they can't trap Jesus in the questions. And, and after Jesus answers these questions, he turns and looks to the crowd and very loudly he warns them of the danger of the religious leaders. And so you sort of see this, this tension building. Like Jesus goes in, religious leaders say, stop. Jesus says, no, they're like, we're gonna, we want to kill you. And, and then they decide they're going to try to embarrass them. They can't embarrass them. And Jesus instead turns the crowd and points to, to, the, to the danger of the religious leaders. And now they really want to kill Jesus. And the disciples see this tension build. And as if to kind of downplay this moment, they just sort of turn back in this moment. They're like, yeah, that was kind of a weird day, Jesus. But look at the temple. Isn't the temple great? And Jesus is like, yeah, it's all going to be destroyed too. It's, it's kind of like a pandemonium moment, right? This is chaotic. Jesus in, 20, in Luke 21 verse 20 says the temple is going to be destroyed. And then the religious leaders in Luke 22 verse 2, they not just want to kill him, they actually plot to kill him. And in that same chapter, this is where Jesus tells his disciples he's going to die. And Peter takes that, this bold statement and says to Jesus, Jesus, you're, you're not going to die, and I would even give my life for you. And then Jesus tells him in verse 34, he, he says to them, Peter, before the night's done, you're going to deny me three times. When you get to this point of Luke, Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, spending his final hours with them, his last six hours on earth. And he takes them to the garden. And all that they had gone through, they've, they, they see the religious leaders building against Jesus. They likely know that they, these guys want to kill him, if not have created a plot to kill him. And they're in this city where the tension is just enormous. And thinking, why are we even here? We need to be hiding right now. Difficult moments for them. And now their leaders just told them, I'm going to die. And they go to the, he goes to the garden and he's praying in anguish. And you really, in this moment, see how this has taken a toll on the disciples. It tells us in, in Luke 22 and verse 40, 45, when, when Jesus rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping from sorrow. He said to them, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Right after this moment, um, Peter is, or Jesus is taken, and he's carried off into this night trial that's illegal in this day and time. But he's, he's run through this trial, and Peter actually goes up to this trial that's taking place, and he sort of watches uh, from the outskirts this interaction that they're having with Jesus. And then Peter ultimately does exactly what Jesus said he would do in verse 60. Um, Peter's approach and he denies Jesus and then he denies Jesus again. And finally, the third time they ask him, don't you know this man? And Peter said, man, I do not know what you're talking about. Immediately while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept 
bitterly. You see how Peter got here, right? He had these moments that build, that just wear on the soul. Your leader is telling him that you're gonna, he's going to die. You followed this leader for years. You think this leader is going to set up the kingdom. Everything that you anticipate, all the hope that you put, put towards over all the, these last few years and spending life with Jesus and walking with him and giving up the fishing and going out and just being a follower of Christ. And now all of a sudden you feel like your world is coming crashing now. In those moments of sorrow, depression, sometimes it happens where our decision-making <laughs> isn't always the strongest. In fact, we could say it's most likely the weakest moments in our lives. And here what we find with Peter is that Peter messed up. Inevitably, uh, when you serve the Lord, at some point, you will mess up. And what do you do? How could God use you? How could you come back from that? When you think about this moment with Peter, he denies Jesus. And Jesus said he was going to do it before he even did it. And when he does it, Jesus even hears him do it. And he looks straight at Peter right after Peter denies him. Can you imagine how gut-churning that was for Peter? His response is immediately to turn face and run away and just weep bitterly in his failure. How do you come back from that? I think in our English language, we have a vocabulary word for that. We call it regret, right? Regret is when you look back with remorse at something for either a foolish choice or a lack of making a choice over something that's done. I think regret is one of the most difficult emotions for us to handle as people. And you don't have to have regret because it's necessarily something that you did sinful, but we all deal with it in some capacity. And I think one of the reasons it's such a, a difficult human emotion to handle is because we're often used to handling things on our own, right? I mean, I, it's up to me. I've got this. You just pull up the bootstraps and you move forward. But when it comes to regret, what we're acknowledging is it's something out of our control. Peter messed up. And he can't undo what's been done. And because now it's out of his power, he carries this emotion of regret towards Jesus in, in this moment. Now, now, what does he do? You know how those times play in your mind, right? If I had only known how much they hurt, I would have done more. If I had known it was my last time to be with him or how it was going to go, I would have done things different. If I could only go back and undo it, I would. In those moments of regret, what you do here, the message spoken into your heart in that moment is critical. And and I would encourage us as as we think about those times that we've gone through, maybe we even hold on to moments of regret right now or, or we're going to encounter, I would encourage you to let the Lord Speak that message into your life rather than yourself. Because what we acknowledge and regret is it's really something beyond our control. You can't undo what's been done. And when you look at the end of the gospel stories, really what you see are two examples of how to deal with it. One example leads to death and the other one, there is health, there is life, there is hope. And when I talk about two examples, what I mean is there's Judas and there's Peter. 
You see, at the end of Jesus's life is really there are two people that deny Jesus, two people that turn their backs on that scripture makes plainly clear in how they behave. One is Judas and one is Jesus. And Judas, in his remorse, we find in the Bible, Matthew 27, verse 33 to 5, that, that his regret led him to such an unhealthy place that it brought death. Judas ultimately went out and hung himself. Now, I'm not trying to give this blanket statement about suicide. I would never do that. But I think there is a degree that we carry such remorse that the, even if it physically doesn't live, lead us to death, spiritually it will. And ultimately, that's where it always ends up. Regret in your own strength produces death. It destroys the soul. But there is a, another way that, that leads to life. And this is what this, this passage in, in John chapter 21 is all about. So you turn to this chapter and you, you begin in John chapter 21. You, you ask the question, okay, we see what Judas did and it ultimately led to death and living a life captivated in regret. That's what it produces. Uh, regret is all about looking at the past in, in remorse, wishing you could change it, having no power to do something. And, and, and I think it's important to know that is how Satan operates. Satan is all about the past. Jesus is all about your, your present and your future. Jesus doesn't so much care about where you've been as to where you are going. Satan tells us in Revelation chapter 21, he is the accuser of the brethren, which means he likes to take your past and, and throw it in your future so you stay stuck there. And in John 21, uh, we, we come to this chapter, and I am so glad that John included this in Scripture. Because uh, you think about, you read the other Gospels, and you see the way Jesus uh, and Peter have interacted at the end of his life, that Peter denies Jesus. And the question in everybody's mind is, well, what, what happened in this relationship? Like, where is Peter in all of this? And how, how are we to view this? And how can we have hope if Peter, who becomes the, the leader, <laughs> denies Jesus? What hope do I have? Right? And John 21 faces it. So what does Peter do? Um, Verse 3. Ready for this profound thought? Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. (laughs) So what I say to you this morning is take a vacation. (laughs) What what Peter's doing in this moment is honestly he's doing nothing. I don't think theologians look at this section of scripture and they try to make this a black and white moment. They're like, okay, Peter's going fishing. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? That's why if you ever read commentaries on this, this is what they try to weigh at this verse. And I would, I really just think it's this, it's nothing. I don't think Peter knows what to do. And so what he does is he just goes back to what he's familiar with until he figures out what he can do because the guy's got to eat. It's like, this is what I did before. This is where I made money until I figure out what, what the next step is. I need to be doing something. And so I'm just going to continue in this pattern of which I trusted in before I knew Jesus, which was fishing. And so Peter said to the disciples, I'm going fishing. And they, the disciples said to him, we will also come with you. And they went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. <laughs> now, why does that matter? Well, I'll tell you why it matters. It's because in life, so many times you take gut punches and you think to yourself, I can't take one more, not even a little one, right? And it's just saying, and here comes a little one. They went all night long fishing and they can't even catch a fish. These guys aren't good at anything right now. You felt like that? What do you do? Well, I think the better question is, what does Jesus do? Because we've been honest with the fact of regret really 
we don't have the ability within ourselves to change things that have been done. And so what does Jesus do? Well, verse, verse 4 tells us. When the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, children, you don't have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast and then they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, the disciples whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. And so when Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. I don't know if we should tell Peter this, but he got it backwards. Right? <laughs> like, um, you don't put your clothes on to then jump in the water. You carry your clothes until you get out of the water so your clothes aren't wet. Right? It's like he's still not thinking straight here. But, but P- Peter, uh, he, he puts his clothes on. He jumps in the water. He goes and sees, he goes and sees Jesus. And, and what you begin to see in this moment is, is this beautiful story of how God meets us in our brokenness and our failures and our regrets. I mean, could you imagine this? What this was like. I mean, you walk with it in regrets, right? If, I, if I'd only known, I would have done it different. If I'd only known it was the last time, I would have said something else. If I could go back, I, I would have done it differently. And, and, and Peter, no doubt, in these moments of his life, he walked around with regrets, saying, if I, just had, if I could have just relived that moment that night one more time, I would have died with Jesus. Or, or, or if I could just tell him I'm sorry. And, and what you see in this moment is everything bad is coming untrue. Everything bad coming untrue. The one that he loved, who he thought he lost, and now he's walking on the shores in front of him. It's no wonder that Peter just leaps out of the boat and runs to Jesus because out of all the disciples, no doubt, he is the one carrying the deepest regret over everything that has taken place. And when I read this story, this this action, these, these words that John shares makes my heart so happy. Because what you see is a God that has not given up on him. Jesus shows up in Peter's life. And he doesn't stop loving him. When I think about this idea of regret, I think the reason that we often struggle with what to do, having no power really to undo anything, is because so often we think about the solution in terms of religion. Our default as human beings is to fight ourselves religiously. And, and what I mean is, when we think about our regret in life, what, what we've learned is, um, I need to, to behave different, to become something different, so I can belong and be loved, right? I need to modify my behavior. I need to behave different, to become different, in order to belong. And what Jesus is teaching us here, guys, is Jesus' primary interest isn't in your behavior. I think God cares about your behavior, but behavior is a fruit. And what God is more interested in is the root. God doesn't primarily care about your behavior. God primarily cares about who you're becoming. And God knows the way you become who he desires for you to be is based on where you belong. Does that make sense? What I'm saying is in religion, in religious way of thinking, there is no hope. 
And here's why. You can change your behavior all day long, but it can never undo the things that you've done that you regret. You can change your behavior all day long, but it's not going to ever necessitate that, that it's going to be perfect from this point forward. And you're always going to have to deal with regret. And what do you do with it? Well, when you can't find a solution, it leads to death. Behavior, becoming, belonging, religion. Jesus, however, is this. Belong, become, and then behave. Jesus knows Peter's not perfect. Could you imagine if God had treated Peter in in these moments in a a religious way? He comes to Peter and he says, oh man, that guy, jeez. You know, I've given him chance after chance. He goes lopping people's ears off, always shooting off at the mouth. I mean, if I keep going with this, he's going to deny me in the gospel in Galatians chapter 1. Forget this guy. Let's pick someone new, right? I can't deal with it anymore. His behavior is awful. He even denied me. But God is showing in this story his interest isn't in what Peter does so much as where Peter belongs. Because in belonging, God can produce in him a different heart. And Jesus preached this over and over. I would say it like this. Um, here's, here's, where, here's where we battle in religion versus relationship to Christ. Sometimes we come to a church gathering and we think, okay, this morning here's what's going to happen. Some of us are even timid to come to church because this is what we think is going to happen. Um, and it does happen. This sinfully happens, okay, wrongfully happens. And if we think Christianity is this, I want to tell you in the front, it's wrong. What I'm about to tell you is wrong, okay? Here's what we think happens. I'm going to go to church, and they're going to tell me all the bad things that I've done. They're going to point out all the good things that I need to do. And I'm going to pull up my bootstraps, and I'm going to do those things, right? That is not Christianity. That will never get past regret. That'll never find forgiveness. That'll teach you all about depending on yourself. That doesn't give you the transformation that God calls you into. That is not what Christianity is about. That is what religion's about. That is not what Christianity is about, okay? If if you don't hear anything else today, please hear that, all right? That is not Christianity. Yes, you will read texts of the Bible that'll say, look, here's, here's things that are bad, here's things that are good. But God's purpose in that isn't to say to you, now go do good. God certainly wants you to do good things, but the, the, the driving force behind why you do what you do isn't about your strength in doing good. It's about what God does in you. The reason God talks about good things and bad things is so that we can recognize in our lives there's something deeper than just my behavior which God wants to address and what he wants to speak to is my heart. This is why we battle with regret is because we fight religion. We look at it and we realize we can't change the past. And so we walk around with this guilt and shame and penance as if I live in that long enough then maybe God will love you. Well the answer is God loves you. That's why he died. God cares about your behavior, but that's not his driving force. What God wants more than anything is your heart because if he can get your heart, he changes your life. And that's what he's teaching Peter in this lesson and inevitably what we learn through Peter's example, which becomes a beautiful story of redemption and hope for us. And so what we begin to learn as the story plays out is give the Lord your regrets. What God does in verse 9 to 14, I'm not going to read that. I'm going to skip past it, but I love this. God has a meal. 
disciples come onto the shore and he has a meal. If you want to read the Gospels, what you find, every great thing that happens in the Gospels happens around a meal. It's communion with God. It's relationship. And then, and then God, God jumps to the elephant in the room after the meal in verse 15. It says that when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Um, let me stop here and say this. Uh, commentaries have a different response on this when he says, Jesus, or Peter, do you love me more than these? There's speculation as to what that means. Um, some people say, well, he's saying, do, do you love me more than you love the disciples? Or do you love me more than the disciples love me? Or do you love me more than you love this occupation of fishing? People speculate in, in, in the different areas as to what it is. I'm, I'm the person that thinks, I think he's talking about fishing here. I think that he's not competing to have a better love than the disciples have. He just wants Peter to love him the way that God's called him to love him. But I, I think he's saying, look, look, are you giving up and going back to this way of life? Or are you really committed to me? And so he says, uh, you can pick your own preference, by the way. I don't, it doesn't matter here. But, but what, is, what does matter is the idea of where Peter's heart is in connection to God. And so he says, so when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said, shepherd my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, well, take care of my sheep. Let me just say this. If Peter was stuck in the past of regret, he would have never lived as God has called him to live in this world. And so he wants Peter to find forgiveness. And he never brings up forgiveness here, but here's the reason I think that we find God bringing Peter in this place of forgiveness. It, it, it tells us in verse 17, after Jesus asked the question three times, Peter was what? Grieved, right? Peter was grieved. Why was Peter grieved? Well, I think Peter recognized what Jesus was doing here. That Peter had denied Jesus three times as Jesus was Going, about to be crucified. And so Jesus brings up that tension in their relationship for which Peter had left Jesus by asking Peter this question three times. It was a place of restoring. Just as you had, had forsaken him three times, I want to know three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter, I think in this moment, was grieved because he knew exactly what Jesus was pointing to. And when you look at the way that this story is written out, this idea of love, there's actually a different word for love used throughout this passage that when Jesus asked the question, Peter, do you love me? Peter does answer yes, right? But when Jesus asks this question, the first thing he says is, do you agape? Do you unconditionally love me? And Peter's response is, yes, uh, yes, Lord, I love you. But when Peter says, I love you, Peter says, phileo, which is brotherly love. So I think Peter answers the question. He's like, yes, Lord, I agape love you and I brotherly love you. Uh, but, but Jesus asked him again, do you agape love me? And Peter says, yes, I love you. And the third time, Jesus, rather than say, do you agape love me, Jesus changes his word for love here and says, do you brotherly love me? And 
people look at this and they speculate as to what ha- has happened here. Some people say, look, it's not that big of a deal that, that, that it's oftentimes done in Greek literature where, um, where or, or, or in um, yeah, Greek literature where they'll play on this word love and use it in different ways, even though it may be the same word that they're intending, that they'll, they'll, they'll switch these words out and not a big deal. I think there's a little something to this. And here's what I think Jesus is doing. Peter, more than these fish, are you willing to forsake things to make me Lord? Unconditionally, do you give your life to me? Peter's response is yes, right? Are you sure you unconditionally give your life to me? Yes. Well, in addition to me just being the king that you lay your life down, Peter, here's what I also want to know. Are we friends? Are we friends? I love this story. Because when it comes to regret, you don't have the power to make things different. It has to come from outside of you. Someone that forgives you, right? And here's what Jesus is teaching Peter. Peter, let me handle what I handle. You're forgiven. And you go do what I've called you to do. Let go of the past. We're friends. We're friends. You belong. You belong. Guys, I, I think the encouragement to us in the story is take it to the Lord. Right? Take it to the Lord. And you look at this and you're like, well, this is great for Peter. This is great. Peter got his moment, but what about me, right? I think about... Um, uh, this passage in Philippians chapter four, verse six, we like to say this, be anxious for nothing, right? Be anxious for nothing. And then when we make the application in our lives, we're like, be anxious for nothing by just all of a sudden not being anxious anymore. Oh yeah, I shouldn't be anxious. Therefore, I'll use my strength and I won't be anxious anymore. But you know the reason why uh, Paul says this to us, be anxious for nothing, has nothing to do with you. The verse that precedes this says this to us, the Lord is near. Why do I have not to be anxious? Is it because within myself I, I draw up the strength to not be anxious? No. It's to recognize that everywhere I go, it's in his presence. That this moment that Peter had is a moment that I can have with the Lord too. That just as he was walking with Jesus on the shore in his life, finding his grace and forgiveness, so God knows everything in my life as well. And it tells me in this passage, be anxious for nothing. Why? Because God's right there. So here's what it's encouraging us to do. Rather than hold on to regret and a religious mindset, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. One of the famous passages in Scripture says this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And guys, get this. Even your regrets. God works all things together for good. Even your regrets. God's big enough. God's big enough to do that and he loves you enough to do that. Even our regrets, God works together for good. I know sometimes for us, um, this is where our battle is. It's hard for us to imagine. You think to yourself, well, how could God, how could God ever work through my regrets? I'm imperfect. How can God work through that? Well, that's the whole Bible. 
The whole Bible is God's, God using crooked sticks to make his, his glory made known in this world. I mean, you think about this. Um, not only does everything true become untrue by seeing Jesus resurrected for Peter, which is why Peter runs to the shore, but you think this, this story has been written for almost 2,000 years. And if you think about the way the churches received this, this is a sigh of relief passage. And you think about what this story is. It is a place where you're like, Lord, I don't, you know, I'm not, I'm not happy Peter, Peter was an idiot, but thank you, Peter was an idiot. <laughs> like, thank you for his failure in this because, because what I learned in my, my life is a place of grace. And so even in Peter's failure, it becomes a, a passage that brings comfort to God's people because we see a path forward for our lives in our failures. And so how in the world could God work all things together for good? Well, for 2,000 years, I think Peter's been a living example for it. And not only that, the, the, the enormous example for our lives always is and forever will be the cross of Christ. The symbol of the darkest, most destructive, torturous device in all of history. And it's our anthem of victory. We boast in the cross of Christ because it is the place of hope. If God can turn the darkest of moments in all of human history to the greatest day of celebration. I mean, we call it Good Friday. (laughs) Good Friday. What is good about that Friday, right? If, if God can do that, I'm pretty sure he's got your life handled too. You think about holding on to the regret and the place it keeps you captive and the destruction it brings to your soul. And Jesus showing up to the shore of your life. One of my favorite passages, Lamentations 3, listen to this. Remember my afflictions and my wanderings, the wormwood and bitterness, and surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. And if you're like that in these moments, you're thinking, I need Jesus to show up in the shore of my life so I can move forward. It says this in verse 21, and this I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never cease fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Why would God say that? Because what God is ultimately interested in isn't your behavior, though he cares about what you do. What God is ultimately interested in is where you belong. Because if where you belong is in his presence, God can transform your life. And God is so big, he can control it all and redeem it for his glory. On that morning, Peter found the mercy of God. Guys, and so can we. If we had to live in our past regrets, no one could ever do anything for Jesus. Not Moses, not David, Not Abraham, certainly not Peter. Because that's the goodness of the gospel spoken into our lives, that God knows that he's not finished with us yet. I think about the way gospel writers or, uh, excuse me, epistle writers have, have just described us. Listen to the way Paul says this. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what is behind and straining forward to what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Peter, the one that denies Jesus, said this, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Guys, when we talk about our regrets, it's not about excusing our sins. It's about finding a healthy way to deal with it. And the answer is Jesus. It's where justice and grace are found so that you find yourself free in him. That's God's desire for your life. That's how we move forward with Christ, as Christians. That this morning, not be about what you do or don't do. This morning, be primarily about this. Are you and him friends? Do you, agape, love him unconditionally, sacrificially? Is he your king? And as your king, are you friends? His mercy is new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Let's pray. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.